and welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 7, White Tool and Trafalgar Square. I'm Marion Jones, enjoyer of City Breaks. I like to go on them, I like to read and do some research before I go, and when I get back, I like to podcast about them, hoping that the things I find out will be of interest to you if you're perhaps going to the city, maybe you're thinking of going, maybe you're not going anytime soon, but you enjoy history and culture and would like to know a bit more about it anyway. So then, today's episode, Whitehall and Trafalgar Square. We are going today on a saunter, a very classy saunter, through one of the most iconic streets in London, Whitehall. We're going to start in Parliament Square, go right the way down Whitehall to the other end, which is Trafalgar Square, and do some stopping off en route, because there's all sorts of interesting things to see. So the format of the episode is first a little saunter from one end to the other, pointing out all the various things, and then in the second half of the podcast, going to come back and stop off at four places, they being the Cabinet War Rooms, in my humble opinion, one of the most interesting museums in the whole of London, the Banqueting House, most famous, I'm afraid, as being the site of the execution of Charles I, but an interesting place to visit for a number of other reasons too, and then once we get to Trafalgar Square, the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery. Okay then, so back to Parliament Square and off we go. You may recall from the last episode that the Houses of Parliament date only from the 1840s, when they were built to replace the much older building that had been there, but which had been destroyed by fire. And a couple of decades after that, in 1868 in fact, it was decided that they really should do something about the surrounding area, clear it up a bit, improve the traffic flow, and so Parliament Square was designed. It is a square, it's just across the road from the Houses of Parliament, and its most notable feature is the 12 statues of prominent figures which are all around it. Winston Churchill, of course, various other 19th century British Prime Ministers, and then some political superstars from other parts of the world, namely Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Yes, you're thinking, they're all very male, and it's true, they were, until 2018, when it was decided they really must do something about that, and it seemed a good year to do it because it was the centenary of women getting the vote in 1918, so a statue of Millicent Fawcett, a suffragette, was duly put up. And in fact, it was also the first statue in this square by a female sculptor, so a double hit. Once you've lingered a little in Parliament Square, then you can set off down Whitehall, which leads into it, and know that you are in one of the most famous streets in the whole of Britain. It's called Whitehall because it used to be the road on which the Royal Palace of Whitehall stood. That too was destroyed by fire, this time in 1698, and nothing of it remains except one building, the Banqueting House, and the name Whitehall. So Whitehall runs from Parliament Square down to Charing Cross, and its very name is these days a synonym for government, because it is the road in which most of the big government offices are situated, and it's chock full of places that you will have heard of, even if you didn't always realise they were in Whitehall. Right at the top, at the Parliament end, for example, are the Cabinet War Rooms, the fascinating underground maze of corridors and offices which were Winston Churchill's World War II headquarters, which today are a most interesting and well worth visiting museum. But that's one of our main stop-offs. I'm going to come back to that at the end of the saunter. So, moving on down a bit, what else will you see on Whitehall? The Cenotaph, the War Memorial, 
which was erected after World War I, dedicated to the glorious dead. As the inscription on it says, there are no names on it, it's just the focus for national mourning and remembrance. It is the site of the two-minute silence every year on Armistice Day, televised and broadcast from right across Britain, led by the royal family. The word cenotaph, I think it's Greek, means empty tomb. This one did have a predecessor, which was put up on November the 11th in 1919, Peace Day, so one year after the end of World War I. It wasn't really intended to be permanent, it was made of wood and plaster, but it was so popular that it was decided a permanent one should be erected. So St Portland Stone was found, the memorial which you see today was carved, and it was unveiled exactly a year after that, on Armistice Day 2020, by His Majesty King George V, who, as I think I related in the episode on Westminster Abbey, led the procession carrying the unknown warrior on the final mile or two of its journey to Westminster Abbey, and they stopped off here at the Cenotaph to unveil it. Just past that, on the left, if you're walking down from Parliament Square, is Downing Street, the road where Number 10 is very well known, being the official home of the Prime Minister, and his next-door neighbour, Number 11, the Chancellor. You can stop and see the end of Downing Street, but you can't get in, because there are gates installed at either end exactly to stop you. Until really not very long ago, it was quite possible to wander down Downing Street, but fears of terrorist attacks have meant that the gates have had to go up I think they've been there since the 1980s. And so all you can do now is peer through them and have a look. The street itself was built by Sir George Downing, hence the name, in about 1680, but the houses were rebuilt after World War II. Also along Whitehall you'll see lots of huge imposing government buildings with titles like the Foreign Office, the Treasury, the Cabinet Office. You will see Horse Guards Arch, something you surely can't miss because it is guarded by two Soldiers on horseback, one either side. A great photo opportunity. And just behind them is Horse Guards Parade, where the ceremonial changing of the guards takes place every day. I think it's usually at 11 o'clock. Further down again, on the right-hand side, the Banqueting House, the only remains of the Palace of Whitehall. The building outside which Charles I was executed in 1649, but we're coming back to that in a minute. So for now, on past that, to the end of the road, which opens up into Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square, of course, named after the Royal Navy victory against the French and Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, October the 21st, in fact, Trafalgar Day. These days it's one of London's liveliest, most crowded squares, used for lots of events and festivals. Think Chinese New Year, um, the London Pride Festival, carol singing under the Christmas tree, and many, many more things. So, in Trafalgar Square, what is there to see? Well, surely the first thing you will notice is the statue of Lord Nelson, not least because it's up on a column which is over 50 metres high. Lord Nelson commanded the fleet which won victory at Trafalgar, and this was the nation thanks to him, for the victory and in memory of the fact that he was killed at the battle. The statue is guarded by four lions, and a nice little thing to know is that they're made of melted bronze, which came, in fact, from French Navy cannons which were captured in the battle. So quite triumphalist, really. And then to add to that, around the base of the statue, four bronze reliefs showing some of Nelson's battle victories. Another Navy man, one Thomas Hood, I think he was an admiral, wrote a poem in which he referred to Nelson's statue, pointing out that it was quite right that anything 
representing a navy victory should be most important in London, more important really, even than the royal family. His words, not mine. Okay, so four lines from the poem read like this. If Nelson looks down on a couple of kings, however it pleases the loyals, tis after the fashion of nautical things, a skyscraper over the royals. There are other things to see. There are the four plinths, raised platforms with sculptures on them. Well, three of them have sculptures on them. Two of generals, I think, and one of George the Fourth. And the original plan was that the fourth plinth would hold the statue of the king who succeeded George the Fourth, namely William the Fourth. But apparently they ran out of money and it never happened. So it's empty. And in recent years, the fourth plinth has been used for all manner of exhibitions and artworks. I don't know if one day they're going to decide what should go on it, but for the moment it's an ever-changing array. We've had a bright blue cockerel, I'm not sure what that was about, a rocking horse, an exhibition of Nelson's ship in a bottle, and a few years ago a hundred-day-long performance piece entitled One and Other. So it ran for a hundred days, and every 24 hours a different person, chosen apparently at random, was invited to stand on the plinth for that period and to use the time however they wished. So some people chose to perform, others demonstrated, others simply sat and reflected. If you go at Christmas, you will see the square looking its festive best, thanks to the Norwegian spruce Christmas tree, which is put up there every year, or has been at least every year since 1947, when the first one was donated by the city of Oslo in Norway to Britain as a sign of the country's appreciation for Britain's support during World War II. This has happened every year since. The tree is duly cut down in Norway. It is sent by ship to Britain. It's decorated in Norwegian style. It's put up before Christmas and it remains there until Twelfth Night. If standing in the square you cast your eyes around, there are various things that you can see without moving any distance at all. For example, the Church of St Martin in the Fields, one of the country's best-known churches. There's been a church on this site since the 13th century. This one dates from the early 18th century. I've seen it described as an architectural jewel, and it's also well known for lots of the work it does with the homeless, broadcasting church services on the radio as a concert venue. It's worth having a look to see what's on, actually. Some of the concerts are free, in fact. And you might like to reflect that St Martin in the Fields is, in fact, the parish church for Buckingham Palace. Charing Cross is down on the south side of the square, These days, Charing Cross is really a transport hub mainly, think tubes and trains, but its name dates right back to the 13th century and is rather poignant. So Edward I was one of our English kings who really did love his wife and was absolutely heartbroken when she died in 1290. He had her body brought from Lincoln down to Westminster Abbey and the cortege stopped off in 12 different places on the way, I'm guessing because the journey took 12 days, And at each place where they stopped, Edward had a cross put up, known as the Eleanor Crosses. And the last one was right here in the village of Charing, very close to Westminster. The cross that was put up here was actually destroyed during the English Civil War. So the one you can see today was built as a replacement by the Victorians. And then just a little way along from there, a memorial to another English king, Charles I this time, looking right down Whitehall. This bronze statue was commissioned in the 1630s when he was king, but after he'd been executed in 1649, it was decided that perhaps it would be taken down. 
So one John Rivet, a brazier, was given the task of destroying it. It's said that he made himself a nice little income by selling commemorative knives and forks, which he said had been made from the melted statue. But in fact, when Charles II came onto the throne in 1660, Mr Rivet decided he hadn't melted the statue down. He had hidden it in his garden. So he dug it up, dusted it off, and it was replaced. So there it stands today, looking down Whitehall, past the banqueting house where Charles was executed, right down to the Houses of Parliament, against which he fought such battles. Something else you can see just from standing in Trafalgar Square is Admiralty Arch. If you look through that, you're looking up the Mall and towards Buckingham Palace. And the arch was commissioned by the British government in memory of Queen Victoria. After she died, after such a long reign, it was decided that really something major had to be set up as a monument to her. And this was it. The Mall leading down from Buckingham Palace with Admiralty Arch at one end, which was used until quite recently as a headquarters for the Royal Navy, and leading on from there was built the Mall and the Memorial Gardens, leading right down to the newly erected Victoria Monument, just outside Buckingham Palace, which itself had a spruce-up and a facelift as part of the whole project. And then lastly, possibly the most imposing building you can see from standing in the square, the one with the columns and the steps leading up to it, that's the National Gallery. And behind that, off to the right, is the National Portrait Gallery. And both of those are places we're going to stop off at in a few minutes. So that's the route then of a very enjoyable walk, which will only take you perhaps 20 minutes, which will take you past some of London's most famous sites and really give you the feeling that you are very much in the centre of the capital. So now we're going to retrace steps and go back to the top up near Whitehall to visit the Cabinet War Rooms a rather chaotic, dark little maze of underground tunnels and rooms, the potential of which was spotted by Winston Churchill himself in 1940. He went down, had a look, and said, This is the room from which I will direct the war. And so it was. He and his military commanders and all the other people it took to run the operation worked down there, some of them practically lived down there, throughout the war. It really was the nerve centre. If you go to visit, for example, you can see the map room, which must have been the nerve centre of the whole operation, and about which the guidebook has this to say. Inside the room, the atmosphere was thick with cigarette and cigar smoke and heated discussion. The three chiefs of staff sat eyeball to eyeball with the Prime Minister, thrashing out their plans for every theatre of the war. It really was a hive of industry down there. Intelligence was gathered, maps were consulted and drawn on. There were colour-coded telephones, people taking information which was plotted on maps, using colour-coded pins and little miniature flags. A warren of rooms in which people worked and ate and even slept. Churchill had his own room. Other people had to find any free bed. This description in a book called London by Tube by Christopher Wynne gives a flavour of how important it was. Quote, They became operational on the 27th of August, 1939, just one week before Britain declared war on Germany, and stayed in use 24 hours a day as the nerve centre of Britain's war effort until the Japanese surrender in August 1945, when the lights were finally turned off for the first time in over six years. It had originally been envisaged that the Cabinet would move out of London, but Churchill decided that this would be bad for morale and so the Cabinet stayed put, meeting in these war rooms 115 times. 
It really is a fascinating place to visit, and no less a person than our current Prime Minister Boris Johnson has written memorably about how much he enjoyed going there. This comes from his book Life of London, and you have to remember that he, of course, is well known as a big fan of Winston Churchill. So this is what he wrote. Quote, I've never been anywhere so instantly redolent of a dead historical figure and of his personality. I can almost sense him padding around behind us in the corridors in one of his red boiler suits, calling for a secretary or a 50-centilitre bottle of Paul Roger, or pouring himself one of his tall glasses of whisky and water, before addressing the nation on the set that is still mounted on his desk. When you go into his bedroom, you feel his physical presence in the neat little civil service issue bed with its plain headboard and blue quilted counterpane. You can draw the curtains on the wall maps opposite his bed and you can see the very sight that greeted Churchill when he woke from one of his frequent power naps, a detailed depiction of Britain's defences and vulnerabilities, the places where it would be easy to guard against a German tank breakout and the places where it would be trickier. They have left most of the building pretty much as it was when it was in use, but they've made one big room into an exhibition on the life of Winston Churchill himself. It's very detailed, full of photographs and quotations and memorabilia. It may well be one of those museums that you don't allow enough time for and you end up lingering and not doing something else that you'd plan to later on in the day. And our second stop at the other end of Whitehall, the Banqueting House the only building which survived the fire which destroyed the Palace of Whitehall, scene of one hugely significant historical moment, as I've already mentioned and will be coming back to, but also a building to visit in its own right to just capture the flavour of royal life in the 17th century. This version was completed in the 1620s by the architect Inigo Jones, commissioned by James I. The architect was a great traveller and lover of classical and renaissance art. He'd been to Italy several times and you can see those influences in the building which he designed. It was, as its name suggests, the Banqueting House, a place for entertainment and enjoyment. So masks were performed here, evening entertainments which were a blend of music and poetry and dance, for which you had to wear fancy costumes, for which very elaborate sets were designed. The scene, as the guidebook itself puts it, of much, quote, decadence and illusion. And please remember, it's not insignificant that in the time we're talking about, the very early 1600s, we are just leading up to the Civil War. In fact, it's a building very much connected with Charles I. His marriage to Henrietta Maria, for example, in the year 1625, was celebrated in this building. He used it when he was giving an important audience to, let's say, a visiting ambassador, or holding a reception for guests whom he really wanted to impress. There's a lovely description in the guidebook about what would happen when a visiting ambassador was brought in. So he would be guided by the Lord Chamberlain into the upper room, the huge, impressive banqueting room, with its lavish ceiling paintings, and he would see the king seated at the other end of this long room, and the ambassador would know that his role was to work his way towards the king in a very particular way. Here's what the guidebook has to say. Quote, as the ambassador progressed into the hall, by two steps, he made his first reverence and the king rose from his throne. A further few steps took the ambassador to the central point of the hall, directly under the painting of the apotheosis, where he made a second bow to the king, who acknowledged it by removing his hat. As the ambassador reached the raised platform on which the throne rested, 
he made his third bow, at which the king descended from the dais to help the ambassador rise and accompanied him back onto the dais. Here he presented his credentials and king and ambassador exchanged compliments. Of course, if all that was going to run smoothly, then the ambassador would have to be rehearsed in advance so that he knew exactly what his role was. And it's quite amusing to note that this didn't always go well. It is known, for example, that when the Persian ambassador arrived, he marched straight up to the king, presented his papers, then turned his back on him, something I gather you should never do, and left. Sadly, I do not know what the king's reaction to this was. So this was a building in which Charles I conducted much of his kingly business, but its connection with him is today best remembered for his last day on earth, the 30th of January 1649, when it was from this room that he stepped out of a first-floor window onto the stage that had been erected with a scaffold on it to be beheaded. He had spent the night before at St James's Palace, taking leave of his family. He had been walked through St James's Park to the banqueting house, where, according to the guidebook, this is what awaited him. Quote, Erected against the banqueting house in Whitehall, the scaffold was hung round with black. In the centre of its blackened and sanded floor stood the axe and a low quartering block of a kind used for dismembering the bodies of traitors. Iron staples had been hammered into the floor for ropes to restrain the prisoner, should force be necessary. It was said that Brandon, the official executioner, could not be found. Two men, heavily disguised with masks, stood ready to perform the act. And the guidebook then goes on to quote the last exchange between Charles and the executioner. I shall say very short prayers, and when I thrust out my hands, then stay for the sign. And the executioner replied, Yes, I will, and it please your majesty. One blow and it was done, and this is what a witness in the crowd wrote later. Quote, there was such a groan by the thousands then present, as I have never heard before, and desire I may never hear again. As it turned out, that was by no means the end of the connection between the banqueting house and the royal family because only 10 or 11 years later, when Charles's son, Charles II, returned from exile, he was carried to the banqueting house. He sat on the throne, which had been occupied by both his father and his grandfather, and he received representatives from the two Houses of Parliament. He resumed the use of the room as a place to celebrate and hold entertainments. He celebrated, for example, the anniversary of his succession there every year. It was used for the annual Knights of the Garter dinner, it was used too for the Maundy service when the monarch would wash the feet of the poor and distribute arms, and for a ceremony known as touching for the king's evil. Charles II actually lived here with his wife and two of his mistresses, and it was well known apparently at the time that the back door was an unobtrusive entrance for courtesans arriving by boat along the river. Today it's still used for certain events, sometimes a state banquet, an awards dinner, exclusive fashion shows, that sort of thing but it's also open to the public so you can go in and visit. And if you do that, what you can expect is a short film on the history of the building, a chance to go upstairs and see the main hall, see the throne, imagine the masks and the audiences that were held there, admire the ceiling, and I don't say the last lightly. It is painted by Rubens, was commissioned by Charles I, and it's a celebration of wise ruling. Oh, irony. Or at least the idea of a wise ruler as seen by Charles I and his father James I, the idea that the king was answerable only to God, an idea, of course, that went very out of fashion 
with the Civil War. But it is a glorious painting, and to make it easy to look at, they thoughtfully provide beanbags so you can lie down on the floor and stare up comfortably for as long as you like. So that's our second stop off. Let's continue our route then, next up to the end of Whitehall, round the corner into Trafalgar Square, across the square to the National Gallery. Definitely a place to visit, not least because it's free, so even if you only want to pop in for a short while, it's still going to be worth it. It's really the place in London to see the history of painting from 1250 or so onwards, all divided up by period, so there are four main sections, 1500 to 1600, think Michelangelo, 16 to 1700, think Rubens, Rembrandt, Vermeer, Caravaggio, Velasquez, the third section 1700 to early 1900s, so Turner and Constable and Canaletto, and then there's a final section for the Impressionists, some Monet, some Van Gogh, Seurat, Cézanne, etc, etc. So, it's massive, it's probably going to be tiring and baffling to try and see all of it, you don't have to because you can pop in and out when you're in London for no cost. So there are various approaches I'd recommend. One might be just visit one area, go and see that one day and save the rest for later. A second way to find your way around is to take a guided tour. There are two or three of those every day, free of charge. And a third way would be to get an audio guide. They've got, for example, one called the Essential Audio Tour, which will introduce you to about 80 highlights from the collection. And there are all sorts of other tours as well. There's one called Manet to Picasso, for example. Or you could go a-googling. If you put in top 10 things to see in the National Gallery, you'll get all sorts of lists from lots of different people. So you could choose the one you like. I found, for example, one on 10 English paintings. Constable's the Haywain, Turner's the Fighting Temeraire, Anthony van Dyck's painting of Charles I on his horse, etc. And I found that many of the lists I came across also had some really good, interesting little paragraphs about particular paintings. So here, for example, is one on the Fighting Temeraire, Turner's painting, from the website Culture Trip. I like it because it gives a little bit of background, something to help you understand what you're looking at when you get to see it. OK, so this is what it says on Culture Trip. Thought to symbolise the decline of Britain as a seafaring power, Turner's painting was painted in 1838 at the prime of his artistic career. It depicts the battleship, Temeraire, which had fought in the Napoleonic Wars, being towed away for scrap. The artist's skill is evident in the expert way he layers and shades the tones of the sea and sky, and the dying light showing behind the bulk of the ship only serves to make the whole scene appear even more poignant. On the website londontopia.net, I found a description of Monet's Japanese garden, explaining, if you didn't know, that Monet moved to Giverny in 1883, lived there for the rest of his life, and created a water garden, over which he built an arched bridge in Japanese style, and explaining that, quote, In 1899, once the garden had matured, the painter undertook 17 views of the motif under differing light conditions. Surrounded by luxuriant foliage, the bridge is seen here from the pond itself, among an artful arrangement of reeds and willow leaves. And thirdly then, here's a quote from artsandculture.google.com, explaining the background to another very famous painting which is there, The Ambassadors by Hans Holbein the Younger. It explains that what you're looking at is two wealthy, educated and very powerful young men. One, who's only 29, is the French ambassador to England in the year 1533, 
and the other is his friend, only 25, who is Bishop of Lavore, and also, on occasion, Ambassador to the Republic of Venice and the Holy See. And then it goes on to explain some of what you're actually looking at in the painting. Quote, The picture is in a tradition showing learned men with books and instruments. The objects on the upper shelf include a celestial globe, a portable sundial, and various other instruments used for understanding the heavens and measuring time. Among the objects on the lower shelf is a lute, a case of flutes, a hymn book, a book of arithmetic, and a terrestrial globe. Certain details can be interpreted as references to contemporary religious divisions. The broken lute string, for example, may signify religious discord, while the Lutheran hymn book may be a plea for Christian harmony. When you consider that there are 2,300 paintings in the National Gallery, you can't possibly look at them all in such detail. But maybe the way forward is to look at a few carefully, with some explanations, and then go again another time. And the fourth place which I've chosen as a stop-off is just round the corner from the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery. It began in the 1850s as a world first, the only portrait gallery anywhere, it had some 57 portraits at the time, moved to its present site in 1896, and is today the world's largest portrait collection. And it is actually not just paintings, it uses all the media you can think of, drawing, caricatures, sculpture, photography, video, and its stated aim is, quote, historical record of prominent British people. So it's the subjects of each work of art that are given the first importance, and the medium is secondary. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some great stuff in there. There are 9,000 or so portraits on display, in chronological order, and so to go through them is to tour through history. Entrance here is free as well, at least for that part of the gallery, although they do stage a lot of temporary exhibitions as well, for which you have to pay. If you're going to the main gallery, I would suggest starting at the top, because that's where the 16th century paintings are, and working your way down to the ground floor, where the most modern things are held. Again, because you don't have to pay to get in, you may well decide to just do one period, and then skip off to something else and come back another day. So if you do start at the top, you will see, for example, the Chandos portrait of Shakespeare. That's the one with him wearing the gold earring that you may have seen, which was actually the first painting donated to the gallery. You will see up there Tudor paintings of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, Francis Drake, several of Henry's wives, Mary Queen of Scots, those wonderful paintings by people like Hans Holbein and his contemporaries, using the jewel-like colours, the ones you see on history textbooks and in television documentaries, etc. Other goodies would include the only known authentic contemporary likeness of Jane Austen, the drawing done by her sister Cassandra. There's also the only surviving painting of the three Bronte sisters, done by their brother Branwell. If you go to the 17th century, for example, you'll see Samuel Pepys and Oliver Cromwell. I think that might be the painting which famously he demanded should be painted exactly as he was, warts and all. That phrase being one of his legacies to us. From the 18th century, you can see Handel. From the 19th, there's Dickens and Florence Nightingale and Darwin. The 20th century, there are photographs of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The painting of the present Queen as a young girl with her parents having breakfast at Windsor Castle. There's video footage of David Beckham sleeping and all sorts of other works bringing us right up to date with pop culture and contemporary famous people. I really think you can say that the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery are must-sees 
for anyone who wants some British history or wants to see really some of the top things to see in London. Not saying I'd go to both on the same day, I think that would probably be overkill, but just to know they're there and that you can pop in and out for an hour any time you feel like it, perhaps with a target of which floor, which area you want to see, and all of this at no cost. Well, really, what's not to like? So that rounds off a visit to the most central part of London, focusing on Whitehall with its very famous squares at each end, Parliament Square and Trafalgar Square. It's quite amazing when you consider that you could do that walk in perhaps 20 minutes and see all those important famous things. You could certainly spend a whole day there too, or longer if you want to visit all the four stopping off points that I've mentioned. It's an area too with lots of cafes and restaurants, often something interesting and unexpected to see in the form of a demonstration in Parliament Square, or some kind of exhibition or celebration in Trafalgar Square. Definitely a little area that should be on your itinerary, whether you're in London for the very first time, or whether you put it on your list of things to pop back to every time you visit. OK, so, so much for today. Next week, we're off to Buckingham Palace. In a triumph of planning, we're going to walk through that Admiralty Arch, up the Mall to the Palace, and go next door to the Mews, where you can actually meet some of the horses that you see on parades and in those amazing royal ceremonies that the British specialise in, and where you can also learn much more about those fairy tale horse-driven carriages in which our royals go out and about, at least on ceremonial occasions. So, all of that to look forward to. I hope very much that you will join me for that. And I hope too that you've enjoyed our visit to Whitehall and surroundings. Perhaps learnt something you didn't know. Definitely felt motivated to go and visit sometime soon. Thank you very much for listening then. And until next week, goodbye.